Hello and welcome to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and as always here on Close Reads, I am joined by Angelina Stanford and normally by Tim McIntosh, but alas, Tim is not joining us today. He has he is otherwise occupied and just couldn't make the show this week. So uh, Angelina and I are holding down the fort for you this week. Angelina, how's it going? It's it's going well. Um, I told Tim earlier that I was going to just go ahead and pause during the show for any time that I thought it would be like a Tim response to me, you know, like, oh yes, Angelina, I really agree <laughs> with that. Or, oh, like we should just have we should have him record a bunch of those. So like, if this happens again, you can just insert them. I'll like, just pause and like, like en- that's brilliant. <laughs> enthusiastic Tim praise. Yes, exactly. In fact, I just said, how am I supposed to know if I say anything clever if I don't have you there to, like, heartily affirm me? Yeah. Well, I'll make a point to be (laughs) super enthusiastic in my praise of the smart things you say. Like, like when you say something, I'll be like, oh, what a great point, Angelina. Like, I'll just go overboard just so you make sure you feel extra. You're not the actor that Tim is, David. I'm not feeling it. I'm fine with sincerity. No, Tim's just sincere. (laughs) Or, wait, is he? Well, now we've got a. Now we've now, got something. That, that's the danger of these actors. You never know. <laughs> yeah, it's like now we've got our own mystery here. Um, before we get started, though, I want to take care of a little bit of business. I want to say thank you to everyone who showed up at the winter conference in Louisville last weekend. It was uh, really fun to have people come up and say, "Hey, great podcast! I listen," or to say, "I know your voice from anywhere," or things like that. Um, we got some some nice compliments from people who've been listening to the shows um, and this one in particular. So uh, thanks to pe- to everyone who was there who has been listening and who dropped by and said hello. Uh, we had some people ask where you were, Angelina. Um, you know, <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> I said I said uh, she's solving a mystery or something. Uh, but <laughs> uh, she's spending time with Lord Lord Peter. Um, and then uh, also want to say, you know, if you have not signed up. Well, not signed up, but I guess subscribed is the, the the more appropriate word. If you have not subscribed to the Close Reads feed and you want to do that, you can head over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever, and you can find the only Close Reads, the Close Reads solo feed. So, you know, not all the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network. You can, you can access it separately if you want. Of course, please feel free to keep subscribing to the main network, and um, if you listen to all of the shows... We are happy to have you, uh, you know, have you aboard, have you as a listener to everything. So thank you for doing that. Um, Am I doing something wrong, David? Because I can't find Close Reads on Stitcher, and someone else told me they can't find it either. I, I will look into it. Thank you for alerting me to that. I will okay. look into that and see if we can solve that problem. <laughs> there's another mystery to solve. We're just <laughs> there's so many mysteries today. Um, well, my default was that I probably was just doing something wrong, and then when someone else said they couldn't find it, I thought, okay, okay, it might not be me. Well, we'll just go with they, both of you are just doing something wrong until further notice. <laughs> uh, Angelina, one other thing I wanted to ask you about is you have a online um, intensive of Taming of the Shrew that you're going to be doing for us. Yes, and I'm very excited you, about that. Could you talk a little bit about what that's going to be like? Oh, yes. Oh, I'm totally put on the spot. This is unprepared remarks that are going to be getting here. Um, I love The Taming of the Shrew. It's one of my favorite Shakespeare plays. And I was going to say, of... that's the one by Shakespeare, correct? Yes. <laughs> that Taming of the Shrew. Um, not my autobiography. <laughs> um, <laughs> at a later date. Um, right, right. But, For- forthcoming. Uh, forthcoming someone's got to tame me first it'll be his autobiography but but, um uh yeah it's one of my favorite plays and 
I feel like it gets, it's just so misunderstood, like in both camps, right? Some people read it as this like um, kind of Shakespeare's a misogynist and it's a misogynistic play and it's very anti-woman and, you know, the Renaissance is anti-woman and literature is anti-woman and why are we reading these dead white men anyway? They all hate women. Um, so I, wow. that, that was that quite, bothers me. you went on a, you went on a journey there. <laughs> That just, well, you know, my, my post-traumatic stress from academia just came out there. Um, and then on the, on the other hand is, um, is this, uh, is, is this read that, you know, um, it's, it's very like male dominating kind of patriarchy. Um, they read it straightforward as a woman who's been put in her place and, and that's what needs to happen. Women need to be put in their place. Uh, I think both of those are horrible misreadings of the form. So you're um, saying there might be more nuance to Shakespeare than our modern readings would suggest. Go figure. Go figure. Shakespeare okay. doesn't want to be put into a simplistic box and especially, wants to get all into <laughs> Especially a, a modern box. Right, exactly, of which he would have no knowledge anyway. Uh, so, Although, yeah. I guess I, he knew about patriarchy. <laughs> well, well, yeah, he would have known about that. Although he had a queen, it would have been very confusing. <laughs> that's, a gr- that's a great point. Great point. Okay, go on. I'm I'm just causing trouble. <laughs> no, that I love trouble. Trouble should be caused when you're talking about taming of the shrew. Um, Shakespeare anyway, in general. So, um, if anybody knows anything about my particular interest, you know that I'm particularly interested in archetypes and fairy tales. Mm-hmm. And I I think the key to understanding taming of the shrew is to read it as a fairy tale. And so I'm going to do a week-long reading of The Taming of the Shrew as a fairy tale, as well as throw a whole bunch of Renaissance scholarship at you and, and uh, explain a great deal of the Renaissance worldviews, uh, particularly their, their view of looking at things in little triads, um, their understanding of hierarchy, which is crucial, crucial for understanding this play, and some of the major themes that uh, Shakespeare throws out in most of his comedies. So we'll mm. be looking at all of that, and I'm really excited about it. So, uh, like, who is this for? This is for anybody. Um, this is for students. This is for parents. This is for teachers. I love doing the intensives. I, I really love them. They're so different than my year-long classes. Um, mm-hmm. And I really, really love having parents and teachers come in there. We just have a great time. And I'll be honest with you. I shouldn't say this on the air because, really, I am the <laughs> world's worst person for, like, making money and good financial decisions because, you know – uh, it's it's an hour and a half long class uh, e- each day, but I end up spending like three or four hours because they just stay after class. <laughs> we just keep talking and talking and talking. So you know, you definitely get your money's worth in this class. I get no money's worth, but you will get quite a value. Uh, it's like it's like two cents an hour by the time I'm done. <laughs> well, maybe you should put less work into it. <laughs> maybe I should. What is my problem? So I just I just pulled up the page here on our site, and it looks like um it is the dates are March 13th through the 17th. And yes. you will be meeting from four to five thirty each day that week. That's Eastern time, and um, you you know if you head over to uh, our academy page, like if you go to CerseiInstitute.com and then you click on Academy, um, and then you go to online course offerings, you can see the the description of it there, or you can just go over to the register button and sign up for it. Um, how yeah, I mean, I haven't even written the description yet. This is hot off the presses. Like Brian and I hammered this out yesterday. So <laughs> yeah, I figured while we had you on the show, we might as well talk about it. Um, no, that's great. And I should point out too, that the recordings are available to anybody who registers in the class. And I regularly have students that can't make all five sessions or maybe mm-hmm. some of them can't even make any sessions mm-hmm. and they just watch the recordings. So yes. it's a whole lot of fun. So, if, and- so for example, if you're working, you could you could sign up and then you could have access to all five classes so all 
all what is that nine hours eight and a half hours of of content um and you could watch them at your own pace right okay right cool um i just the description here mentions that you have a more than a mild obsession with wendell berry (laughs) (laughs) um so speaking of people you have more than mild obsessions with we're here to talk about lord peter whimsy um and uh yes we are i got my (laughs) fan and my swelling salts i'm ready (laughs) uh so this is we're gonna talk about chapters five through eight and i think these are interesting chapters because they kind of uh move along from some of the preliminary work that sayers is doing in the first four chapters you know if you i'm just gonna have an aside here if you were following our facebook uh, diatribe (laughs) on how to say her name apparently she was very particular about how it was said and we had kind of a fun debate i hope it was fun i'm i i was having fun (laughs) you enjoyed it (laughs) uh i don't know about all our listeners but um we had a debate about how you say her name so is it dorothy sayers dorothy 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 sayers like stairs without the t which i still have trouble saying i i can say it i've discovered i can say sayer sayers (laughs) sort of if I'm not saying it in a sentence, like if I'm saying her name with other words, I'm not capable of it. So you're going to have to bear with me, dear listeners who are angry with me for how I pronounce it. But maybe by the end of the by, maybe by the end of this series of, of episodes, I'll have it down. Um, but uh, you can go check out the uh, Facebook group for close reads and you can follow that debate if you want to. Um, or you cannot. I might suggest you not. Um, <laughs> But um, so those first four chapters, are, there's a lot of preliminary stuff. There's a lot of like setting the stage. Um, a lot of characters are dropped there, dropped on top of us. So it's kind of confusing in that way, which makes sense given that it's a mystery story. We're meant to be a little bit in the dark. <clears throat> but chapters five through eight now, I think it seems like they, there's a big shift to where, to where things kind of – it becomes much more about how he's solving the crime. Um, do you agree with that? I do, and I, f- I found it – well, you know, we didn't plan it like this, that that four chapter. we didn't know that four chapters, you know, when we chose four chapters at a time yeah, was yeah. going to be the marking point. But it was really interesting that fi- – yeah, chapter five is absolutely a shift. I mean, look – it's like it's like the fog has lifted. I mean, it starts off with this matter-of-fact sentence, Lord Peter Whimsey paid a call upon Chief Inspector Parker, and, and now you're in a Lord Peter Whimsey novel. Yeah, yeah, and the interesting thing is – the name of chapter five is the surprising metamorphosis of Doctor of Mister Breeden. Mister Breeden, yeah. So even just in the title, like the, it's the, there's a signal that it's a shift, and the course right. And she doesn't like do. It's not a big reveal. Like it's right. not a plot point. Da da da. He's really Lord Peter. It's you know it's not. It's just matter. Of, and of course he's Lord Peter, and now he's being Lord Peter. Right. It's like I could imagine like if you're watching a TV show about a detective, or like. Um, a, a police officer or whatever it is, what the, if that person showed up undercover somewhere, they're not going to try to convince you that it's not him. You know right. it's him, so you, so you're familiar with him, and so you know. But somewhere along the way, he steps out of costume and goes and does the things he does normally to solve crimes. And it's that same idea. So if you if you know Lord Peter, then you know it's him. Maybe I guess for those of you who hadn't, if you hadn't read this book before. And we hadn't talked about it, and it didn't say on the cover that it's a Lord Peter Whimsy mystery. <laughs> then I guess you could get thrown by who, um, you know, Mister Braden is. But uh, speaking of this, you have done some research on how to pronounce his name. Yes. Okay. This because I'm I'm completely obsessed with wanting to say it right. Um, 
Um, so in, an, in an, another book, he makes the joke, right? We're talking about the name D-E-A-T-H and how to say it. He makes the joke that most people rhyme it with teeth, but he likes to rhyme it with breath. And so anytime I read the books, I always said deeth. But before we started so the Deeth podcast, Braden. So Deeth Braden, right. Okay. Um, but, but when we started the podcast, I started to second guess that. And I was like, I actually don't know how to say it. So I Googled it. And yeah, that's when I saw. Once you had to say it and sound authoritative on, on a Well, right, the exactly. <laughs> feeling all this pressure to get it right. How could, I, how could I not know how to say the middle name of the man I love? I mean, that's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, that would be bad. That would be terrible. So good, good thing. So I Googled it. And that's when I came up with Dieth Braden. But then... And so that's what I was saying in the first few episodes. And, but then I kept reading. Mm -hmm. uh, I found out, among other things, that it's a popular name from Lower East Anglia, most okay. popular in the 1800s. So I'm presuming it's like a family name. But then I found out, as with most things, how you pronounce it depends on the region you're from. So I found Dieth, Dayeth, and Dieth. No, I couldn't find any documentation to call it Deeth. Our death, except in reference to this book. <laughs> then put on top of that two different audio books. One says death, one says death. And so the conclusion of all my research is I know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I am more confused than I was before. <laughs> so it's funny because somebody came up to me at the conference, and I think what she said was that she was listening to an audio book, and, and in the audio book they were calling him death. Um, and so that got me thinking, I wonder if they just go with whatever or in, for an audiobook, or did they not do research or did they do research and just, just figured out the same thing that you said and so then they had to pick. And, and then also it might be that I was working a conference and have no idea what this person actually said to me and remember it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. but, but I had asked people on the Facebook page who were listening to audiobooks to tell me. And, okay. and so one person, one person said Deeth and another person said Death. So I think the audiobook said death and the dramatization said death. Okay. 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 Interesting. So well, I, I have no idea. I mean, I always thought he was making a joke out of pronouncing it like breath. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, he's yeah. whimsy, he's mysterious, and he yeah. does murder mysteries, and he's making a joke. I didn't really think it was pronounced like that, so I, I don't know. <laughs> You're just going to have to tell me what to call him. Just call him whatever you want. We're just gonna I'll call him darling. Why don't we call him Lord Peter? Um, okay. <laughs> uh, my liege. Um, so let's let's talk about uh, how some of this this shift happens. Obviously, like you said, it becomes a Lord Peter mystery because all of a sudden we're, it says Lord Peter pays a visit to his brother-in-law, the, the chief inspector, who then obviously has his own little mini adventure in chapter seven, I think. Yeah. Um, but but what is she, how does she do this? How does she go about? this shift here because there is you know something to the craft of this that i think is worth looking at there's um, a shift in the tone as well like okay, it's yeah, very okay. frantic in the yeah. first four chapters it's like i kept thinking about screwball comedies you mm -hmm. know it's just like in my head i'm just all of these girls are like you know my girl friday and they're just zinging it and it's just fast and it's chatter and and this just slows way down mm -hmm. in chapter five yeah um do you think it's for the better or for the worse or do you or is it does it not have that kind of do you have you not thought about it that way well, I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think it I think it's effective. One of the things I was thinking about was how in a typical Lord Peter novel, there are also kind of two different rhythms. And one is mm -hmm. his public persona when he's acting the buffoon and as somebody described him, he seems like someone who only ever goes to dinner parties, mm -hmm. but he's not. You know, he's more than that. Pamela Dean says that about him. Mm -hmm. So in the typical whimsy novel, you still have those kind of two faces. You have 
you know, the Bertie Wooster side of Lord Peter. And then you see the kind of scene we have in chapter five where he's with his sister and he's with Parker and you see, you know, he's not an idiot here. He's smart and sharp and having an intelligent conversation. Uh, and you're seeing the real Lord Peter. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, that's a pretty standard um, kind of setup for her. But in this one that she's doing it with a different alter ego, um, Mr. Braden. So mm -hmm. that was interesting. So do you think that that this makes this is a game that Lord Peter is playing in a sense or is there or is there more going on here in terms of his person of his character is he is he doing it on purpose or is it that there's I don't want to say it's sinister but something more complicated in who he is as a as a character oh I definitely think it's it's more complicated um, like how you know, much of it can, can he help? Well, right. I mean, some of it is that, you know, he is kind of silly. <laughs> yeah. He's kind of a silly person. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where, that's the, that's where the Wooster comparison, that's right. why people call him. Right. And, but he's the second son. And, you know, that that's always a troublesome character in literature, the second son, right? Like, what are they supposed to do? He can't have a job, but he's not going to be the Duke of Denver. So what's his role? And, and, and you see his relationship with his brother really kind of shifting over the years in the books and... Um, you know, he's, he's kind of the embarrassing second son, you know, he's the kind of, you know, I hate to say it, but like, you look at Prince William and Prince Harry and like Prince William is all, you know, by the books and he's gonna, he's serious and he's got the family name and he knows his duty. And Harry is like at every nightclub throwing up on every front page. Right. Like, <laughs> like can, that's kind of it. Can you take a step back for us then? And kind of, for those who are new to Lord Peter, give us some context for his family. Uh, well, they're, uh. You know, they're, a, they're an old aristocratic family, and uh, his father was the Duke of Denver. He dies, so the older brother becomes the Duke of Denver, and he's Colorado? very— Colorado? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Denver, Colorado. I didn't realize there were Dukes of Denver. How does one become that? You buy a lot of land. Okay. And a lot of cattle? A, okay, got Start it. an organic co-op. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. All right. <clears throat> I'm causing trouble uh, again. No, that's fine. Uh so <laughs> See, now I'm pausing for Tim's, come on now, guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah but so he's like the straight-laced brother. Now, there is a, a book where I think it's um, The Unpleasantness at the Bologna Club where he gets falsely accused of a crime. And that's the first time. The brother the, does or Lord Peter does? The brother does. Okay. The brother does. And so that's the first time that this sort of embarrassing hobby that Peter has, because it's an embarrassing hobby that he's out there playing detective. That's an embarrassment to the family. Hmm. Um, so that's the first time that it becomes less of an embarrassment and more like, okay, maybe you're doing something good here. And so that relationship changes. And uh, But there's always a little bit of friction about his antics and his embarrassment. Now, his mother adores him and he adores her. Um, but he's, you know, he's the bachelor, kind of wild second son. Um, hmm. But, but you know, there's a lot of love in the family. It's not a dysfunctional family at all. So... Um... One he's of, very close to his nephew. That that relationship that develops over the course of the books is really nice too. The okay. nephew gets a crazy crush on Harriet. It's wonderful. <laughs> okay, so one of the things that happens um, in these chapters is she starts to mess with perspective a little bit more, like how much we know as readers and whose head we're in and all that kind of stuff. And it, what's it's different than a lot of mystery novels <clears throat> um, in that you know, like if you're reading a say. Raymond Chandler novel, for example, one of the noir novels about um, Sam Spade. 
you're almost always only getting what he's getting, right? So mm-hmm. so you're you are only privy to whatever information he is privy to and you and you also are privy to every bit of information he's privy to, which kind of follows one of her rules, right? That that the reader should be privy to all the information. Is that correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or at least enough information. If if Sam Spade's going to solve the crime, in other words, in a Raymond Chandler novel like The Big Sleep, then you also need to be privy to that. And that's it's kind of interesting how Raymond Chandler kind of subverts that a little bit. But <clears throat> but here we're not just in Lord Peter's head, right? We're in the head of Copley. We're in the head of uh, Joe. What is it, Ginger Joe? We're in the head of uh, Parker. Of, of Parker, and, and it's constantly changing. Pamela Dean. Yeah, yeah. It's... Diane Demore May, or whatever her name is. Right. It's constant perspective, point of view. It's constantly changing, which is um, which can can be confusing. Um, so in that way, it, it kind of works for, for creating mystery, but it also starts causing you to question things. Um, did you do you agree with that 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 she's playing with that on purpose or or is it just I'm am I reading into that because I'm confused? <laughs> no, I think she is. I, I don't even know what to call it. Sort of controlled, limited omniscience because yeah, you know yeah. she's trying to do some misdirection. That's that's the you know the form right. One of these characters that we're getting presumably. I mean, I honestly, mm-hmm. I'm, this is no spoiler because I cannot remember who did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, which I found out from a lot of other people, they don't either. So I don't think that was unique to me that hmm. we can't remember who did it when we read them again. Hmm. Um, but let's say that one of the characters who we've gone inside their heads for a moment, you know, is is the killer. Mm-hmm. Then then sh- there's some misdirection happening there. They're not being a totally reliable narrator, or or at least we're being so limited as to maybe skew what the truth is. Like hmm. you know, when we go into Victor Dean's head, not Victor Dean, the friend. Willis, Mr. Willis, uh, and you know, and he's saying, "Oh, I want to, I want to push, I want to push Braden down a staircase. Oh, if I can get my hands around his neck." I mean, yeah. obviously, that is misdirecting us. That this is everything so far has been pointing to him as the killer, except for Lord Peter saying, "I don't think he's made of that stuff, and I don't think he can do it." Mm-hmm. And just typically follow. And again, this is not a spoiler because I don't remember who did it. But following kind of the law and order form, the first person you suspect can't be the can't be the killer. Right until until it is at the end because you, yes, you think that it's yes. not and then it is again. They're, they're... But it's but it's but but it, but he is the killer for a totally different reason, like one you didn't see coming. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Like yeah, it was more like daddy problems than anything else. Right. Correct. Uh, um. So, although I doubt that that's what's going on in a um, Lord Peter novel. I I do doubt here. Although yeah, I mean, go ahead and finish your thought. But I mean, should we talk about? It? I didn't remember there being that much language in the book. Like it's it's this is edgy. This is not a typical Lord Peter. Yeah, novel. I was gonna say I didn't I didn't recall. I haven't read this one, but I didn't recall other Sayers novels they, having they that. They aren't. I mean, I remember that when I finished it, I felt like it was a lot edgier and darker than her other stuff. But as I'm reading it again, I'm like, wow, I didn't I didn't remember all this. <laughs> yeah. So maybe you know, hopefully people aren't reading it a lot to their kids and you know, not skipping words. Uh, but um. Well, no, with all the drugs and orgies, this is not the book to read to your kids. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, at, le- at least it's like on the on, on, under the surface, right? But that actually is an interesting point, is being under the surface, because what one we got a few comments that people were having a hard time getting into it at times, and I think that's interesting. I I found it. I find it. I found it. I was. I felt similarly, um, and I and I was wondering if it's a matter of stakes, because while. Victor Dean died. The the kind of comedy that lingers over the whole scene and and the around the ad agency in particular and the various relationships between the people and the way Braden is interacting with them is very humorous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it feels at times 
or at least did for a while, like the stakes aren't there. Like, you know, when you read an Agatha Christie novel, like, a, like, yes. uh, and then there were none or something like that, or um, Murder on the Orient Express, there's always like, from the get go, there's this threat hanging over it. And it's let, and here it's kind of all the stuff sort of under the surface for so much of it. Yes, yes, I completely agree with that. And I think that that's a reflection. I agree with you. The first four chapters, it's like, eh, I don't really care what happened to Victor Dean. <laughs> right, right. It's like, I, I don't have this burning desire that I have to know who done it. Which and is that's what kind of, that is kind of one of the risks of having the, the murder already be committed. Right. And not knowing, just... or the death anyway. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's true. You don't have, you don't feel this like sympathy with the main character. You don't feel his loss because we don't know him. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, though, I think that's sort of reflective of the conversation that Peter has with Parker in chapter five, where Parker says, "What exactly are you investigating?" And he says, "I don't know." Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I'm investigating a murder or a blackmail or fishiness. I don't know. I don't know what I even am trying to find out. So I think hmm. the sort of ambivalence we feel is kind of reflective of he, his confusion. He's still sort of trying to figure it out too. And it doesn't become personal for us, the reader, I think, until Parker is attacked and you realize that Lord Peter was the person, the intended victim. And it's like, okay, now, Which now is, I've got something invested here. Yeah. And that's in chapter seven. And that's, what's really interesting about that is the way uh, I, I was thinking about this. Would it have been the same effect if, uh, Sayers had had Sayers Sayers had had um this is gonna haunt me it was gonna uh <laughs> if she had had the person just actually successfully attack Lord Whimsy and either he fights the assailant off or or someone rescues him or something but you know because it's Parker it's his brother-in-law and he's got the sisters involved and all that kind of stuff does that change the stakes for us does it make it more dramatic do you think that it would have been if it had been Lord Win Lord Peter? How do you think that would have changed it? I, I do think it's more dramatic when it's like his family and friends getting pulled in. I mean, Parker's a policeman, but at the same time, this isn't his case. So he, there's there's this sense in which things might be spinning out of Lord Peter's control and other people are getting hurt. I, I think that for me, at least, it, it ups the tension. I always feel that way in stories, though, when I feel like things are spinning out and other people are getting hurt. Mm -hmm. I mean, And then it's like, oh, the children were asleep in their beds when this was happening. Mm -hmm. And you just think of all the things that could have gone wrong. This could have just gone horribly, horribly wrong. Because really, Lord Peter doesn't know what he stumbled on, and you've got the references to drug deals, and maybe it's something to do with drugs and organized crime, and I mean, or maybe it's just a heartbroken lover. Uh, you know, we don't know what it is, and, and and but he's he's poking his finger in there, and now he's stirred up this hornet's nest, and so he says, "Ah, oh, you know, I thought something might have happened when I went showing that catapult all around, but you know, I didn't think it was going to be this." Yeah, well. Shouldn't he have thought that something bad could happen, though, if he's really trying to chase on a murderer and he's, like, being as blatantly obvious about um, about it? I mean, he's not coming right out and saying, I'm investigating, but whoever, if someone was guilty of it, they'd start to wonder. Um, do you think he was being short-sighted and not not thinking something could happen? He might have been. I mean, that's kind of Peter. That's kind of that, well, what hole? What, what, what happened here? <laughs> You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe he should have uh, been more circumspect and careful about that. But he doesn't. Yeah. On, on the other hand, I think you almost have to just you have to like force somebody to do something because you don't even know what you're investigating. Right. So, I think it's pretty plain. I think you can conclude after this that it wasn't an accidental death. Right. Well, that's true. Yeah, it does change that that from that perspective, and it kind of confirms that for him, for Lord Peter, um, and it also gets the. Parker involved 
Like he he's mm-hmm. now a part of the investigation essentially. I mean, I don't know I don't know what's going to happen with him, but once he gets attacked, his perspective on it's going to change, or at least you'd, one would think. <clears throat> Do you think that is so? Is is whimsy being sloppy in these chapters when as he's investigating and talking to all these different people and everything? Is he, and if he is, is it purposeful? Usually his sloppiness is purposeful, and usually you can see like how smoothly he pulled off getting the fingerprints off that catapult. Mm-hmm. You know, just he cuts himself and then and unwraps the handkerchief all in one moment. I mean, I knew exactly what he was doing. Like, oh, smooth, Peter, smooth. But he looked like just a bumbling idiot who had cut himself. And she's mm-hmm. like, oh, let me help you with that. And so usually his sloppiness is is intentional. Like as soon as people – that that section started with the character saying, what is that idiot doing up there with the catapult? I knew he was trying to be seen because mm-hmm. Lord Peter's not going to be seen unless he wants to be seen. Mm-hmm. So, but I, but I think he does it in such a way that he looks like this idiot who just accidentally got sawn, you know, got sawn. Nice. <laughs> so, he, <laughs> sawn. so he has to, so he's just playing his part as the, as the new copywriter. Yeah. His I think life so. of the party, new copywriter. Yes. Yes. I also loved that kind of Clark Kent moment when he changes in the car from yeah. Braden to Lord Peter by changing his part, taking off his glasses. That was yeah. so awesome. Yeah, yeah. And then he and then so, what is it? Someone one of the one of the girls in the office sees it. Does yeah, it... that was in an earlier chapter. But okay. oh, this okay. one is like yeah, in yeah. chapter eight or something. With, oh, yeah, yeah. he's got it and he and he so he, he I think he's seven. in the car and yeah, so he, he he changes his part and he <laughs> takes off his glasses and now he's Lord Peter. Yeah, and he, uh, yeah, yeah. So the last paragraph of chapter seven, in a taxi rolling southwest, Mister Braden removed his spectacles, combed out his side parting, stuck a monocle in his eye, and by the time he reached Piccadilly Circus, was again Lord Peter Whimsey. With a vacant wonder, he gazed upon the twinkling sky signs as though ignorant astronomer. He knew nothing of the creative hands that had set these lesser lights to rule the night. Yes. Now, was this written before Superman, or kind of at the same time? Because it's very Clark Kentish to me. You know, when was this? so? What year was this written? This was written in thirty something. Thirty something. Well, um, I you know what struck me was it, that was a rare a, a rare um, instance of uh, Sayers um, allowing some lyricism to slip into her writing because yes. it's often like heavy on the conversation and description extremely heavy on description especially when she wants us to get into the perspective of of uh the character superman was created in 1933 this was 1933 sorry 1938 is the first comic appearance so 1933 i just looked it up this book okay so i guess not i guess it came before uh superman at least as far as the appearance but you could see whoever created it reading this perhaps if this was a if this was a popular book at the time um, Jerry Siegel wasn't that the name of the guy who created S- Superman? Oh, that I would not know. Um, I'd be interested to know if he had what he was his influences were. Uh, but um, what was I saying? Oh, the lyricism. Yeah, so it's all often very heavy on the description, and so like when we're with Parker or we're with Copley or whatever, we're constantly getting in their head, seeing what they're mm-hmm. seeing, and it's mm-hmm. it's very um, it's actually very different than most mystery or detective novels where only the detective is the one that has this ability to, to like, disc- like uh, notice detail. Um, but here, it, with an omni- omniscient narrator, or at least an ostensibly omniscient narrator, um, we see way more than you would normally. And it's kind of 
interesting how she messes with that. But then in this paragraph here, she gets very lyrical. It's very there's yeah, like I, a, I there's a Fitzgerald something Fitzgerald about this. It's very like Gatsby-ish. Yeah, yeah, and <clears throat> and uh, I don't know. It's like we can see that she can do it, so she's obviously choosing not to. Mm-hmm. With a vacant with a vacant wonder. He gazed upon the twinkling sky signs as though ignorant astronomer. He knew nothing of the creative hands that had set these lesser lights to rule the night. <laughs> it's interesting. And that's also a more explicit Christian reference than she usually does in her books as well. And yet, isn't it at the same time, like, both making more of advertising than probably should be, and yet at the same time making fun of it? Like, there's, there's so many different ways you could read a sentence like that. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, the lesser lights to rule the night being the ad- the signs with all the, you know, presumably the neon signs of the advertising. Oh, and... yeah. I hadn't read it that way, but you're right. You can. You can <laughs> and, totally. And yeah. so, as though ignorant astronomer, he knew nothing of the creative hands. So he knows about the hands that created these ads. But they're the lesser lights, you know. So they're not really, they're not as, well, they're not the stars, certainly. Um, but they're, you know, as she's just as she's kind of ripping on advertising throughout, or at least having her characters be somewhat um, uh, cynical about it. Uh, she then drops this thing here where, you know, they're, they're, they're ruling the, these lesser lights that rule the night and he knows about it, but um, the twinkling sky signs. And yet he's this really rich, he comes out, he changes into this. He doesn't, we don't get this line until he's basically dressed in his, lord attire right the monocle mm-hmm. and he's wealthy and um he the, the the signs he once he i don't know there's something about being wealthy and juxtaposed with him recognizing these signs that is striking to me and i don't know what it means i don't know if it's on purpose but it's just interesting to me that it's when he's dressed as a lord that he thinks about adver- these advertising signs in that way that's probably i'm probably making too much of it but <laughs> oh. You know me. I don't think you can make too much of literature. <laughs> it's at least it's at least interesting. It is. It is. It is interesting. It is. I, I just I love all of her little commentary on advertising. I laughed so much at these chapters. I love uh, when he's going through kind of the suspects, right? Like who who's in the office, and he goes through them, and he says, "Now, Mr. Pym is a man of rigid morality, except, of course, as regards his profession." <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> his essence is to tell plausible lies for money. I mean, there's just. I mean, when he goes into the whole, the difference between made from pears, made from pears only, made with pears. I mean, that's yeah. just fantastic. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. so true. It could be that totally, that conversation could have had five minutes ago. You know, that's super true. Yeah. yeah. And I love Parker's response. Mary, take note next time you go shopping. <laughs> <laughs> well, and um, I forgot what I was going to say. We have to make sure that we don't do the podcast without commenting on the reference to Harriet Vane and his secret date with her in the midst of this. Oh yeah. Um, okay. Yes. That was in, um, I marked it. Let's see if I can find it now. See it. What he said there was not, it's not of, uh, is not of interest to the story or something. Right. Right. There it is. So what? No, 401 in my book. It's right before Ginger Joe gives his report. So what chapter? Is, is that in, in eight? Seven. Oh, yeah. Chapter seven. So right before Ginger Joe gives his report. This is great um, dramatic radio right here. The whole, But the whole section where he's on the phone 
with uh, with Pamela Dean. Yeah. And you know she's very interested in him, and he's you know he's he's playing her a little bit. Um, and uh, but but he's not, he only takes it so far, and then he says. Oh, I hope he thought she isn't going to make an awkwardness. You cannot trust these young women. No fixity of purpose. Except, of course, when you particularly want them to be yielding. <laughs> he grinned with a wry mouth and went out to keep his date with the young one young woman who showed no signs of yielding to him. And what he said or did on that occasion is in no way related to this story. Which, of course, harkens back to what you were just saying, how he, what he said a proposal every day. Is it something like that? Yes, and yes. And she would refuse him over and over again. yes. I, I love the idea of a detective having something he can't solve. Yeah. So in, like, his, in his personal life. Right. Yeah. I, do we see that in other stories? I feel like that's kind of a convention, is it? I think so. I mean, like, usually they're less, um, they're a little darker, usually. Like, Sherlock Holmes has his his addiction, right? Right. Or it's like, you know, my dad was murdered, and we never found out who it was, and so this is what compels me to right. search for justice. Or you have the... Like in the noir, it's often there's they're they're these troubled anti-hero type characters who, while great detectives, have something else going on. So, you know, there's got to be something to balance out their their genius, right? Something, some flaw that makes them not um, invincible, whether or at least not at least if if they they at least have to have something that causes us as the reader to not look at them as pure superhero right right something they have right. to, something they have to overcome even as they're solving the mystery like something that it's like a superhero you know in a superhero movie batman has or superman have to have some flaw some foil something that can uh, foil them <laughs> well yeah something to make them a little more uh human i mean if you can say that about someone who's not a human superman but <laughs> uh. <laughs> right right but yeah, actually, that kind of reminds me. So C.S. Lewis, when he wrote his eulogy of Dorothy Sayers, talked about the Whimsy stories and talked about Lord Peter Whimsy. And I'm paraphrasing here and we'll probably butcher it horribly. But basically what he said is that he had heard people um, offer as a complaint that Dorothy Sayers was writing about a man she was in love with. And, and sort of like that was kind of unfair, right, mm -hmm. that she's just falling in love with him in the series of books. And Lewis says, no, I think if you read the stories, it's actually the story of her falling out of love with him. And he says, because at the beginning, he's just this perfect man. He's the ideal. And yet as the story goes on, she creates a real man. And and so that's interesting what you're saying because Harriet Vane doesn't come in until the the later like when Harriet Vane enters his life this is the first time when somebody's told him no and he can't get his way and we begin to see a real human being develop in these stories. Hmm. Yeah, and then so you have this kind of back and forth between his seriousness and his uh, non-seriousness. <laughs> <laughs> Just because, like to where you he is sometimes he's Wooster right. In the way he interacts mm -hmm. with people, even like the people who know who he is, like his like Parker and Mary, they know who oh, he yeah. is, and he's basically Wooster with them, right? He's like he, even as he's investigating, he's hardly taking it seriously. Um, or when he hangs out with Ginger Joe, or when he's flirting with the girls in the in the, uh, in, the in the in the office, or when he's teasing the other man, or whatever it is, there's so much Wooster there, right? But then he yes. can, he has this switch that he flips, or or this at least when you're inside his head, there's a seriousness of mind. Yes, and, and a and, kindness. You, know, you remember at the end when like they're all teasing that guy, and then he's like, he tells the the typewriter, just go ahead and type up his copy. Like, 
yeah, right, he's having yeah, a for, day and he doesn't yeah. feel well. Right. So right. you realize that he's a lot more emotionally intuitive and kind than you might think with his sort of Bertie Wooster, I'm so out of it exterior. So do you, so so then was was Sayers specifically trying to create a Wooster like character? Like was was that purposeful in creating I mean, I know that she drops the references to Wooster and Woodhouse and all that throughout the books, um, particularly in chapter one. But was she out setting out to do that? Well, I mean, she describes him elsewhere as a combination of Bertie Wooster and Fred Astaire. But so I think that it was intentional in some way. But you don't think of either of those two people as being like serious-minded, like people who are, I, I mean, sympathetic right. to others right. and things like that. I mean, I guess Fred Astaire is an actor, so it depends on the role that he's playing. But uh, I think I think probably she was. Ref- I mean, that's the way I read it, that she's referring to his sort of external persona. Okay. I mean, what's so f- – one of the things that's so fascinating to me about Lord Peter – I mean, obviously, I'm all about – you know, he's he, – not so much in this book, but in the other books, he's constantly dropping poetry, and he's very poetic, and he's very emotionally perceptive and intuitive, and he's very mm-hmm. kind, mm-hmm. Um, you know, and all of those things I find as, you know, very attractive, positive traits, but – um, and I'm not sure if Dorothy Sayers and I just have this in common or, or, or what, but I am just fascinated with men who are sort of a paradox, you know, with men who look one way, but there's this hidden depth underneath. And that's what's so interesting me, to me about whimsy is like, you know, if you, you have to, you have to be entered into that world to see that there's something more to him. Uh, and you're right. It's not. It doesn't. It's not the same thing as a public persona versus a private persona, because mm-hmm. he is that way in private. I mean, mm-hmm. if you take his relationship with Bunter in mm-hmm. the in the other books, even in private, it sounds like it's Jeeves and Worcester. And, and Bunter's you know, his and butler or something, right? Bunter is his butler, his man, yeah. right? His so for those who've only read this book, right? And so you know, it, 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 you would totally think that he's just, you know, a toff, an aristocrat, and he's spoiled, and he's childish, and his manservant is taking care of him. And that's the way they are in the house. And you could just see that, you know, in his apartment, almost like, I mean, Jeeves would never roll his eyes, but you know that Jeeves is very kind of disapproving of Bertie sometimes. And you you sense that with, with Bunter and Lord Peter. And then, though, you find out more of their story, and you realize it's nothing like that at all. And I don't want to, I'm not going to say that because I don't want to be spoiling that revelation as people read the books, but they have a beautiful relationship. And when you find out the truth of it and what is it that binds them together, it's, you know, it's super touching and and you realize you you had it all wrong. And for whatever reason, whimsy, he, he, he has that mask even in private and he has it even in private with Harriet so that it takes her a while to figure out who the real, who the real whimsy is. I want to I want to move on real quick just because of time, uh, but I want to talk about Ginger Joe, um, because he gets his own section. He and, does, and he seems like um, he may just at first he seems like he may just be kind of a superfluous character, but then he gets this whole section and and um, Lord Peter enlists him. Uh, I guess Brayden in that situation enlists him, and the whole thing was a little bit interesting to me because. It seems like Lord Peter turns to him and confides in him and trusts him so quickly and easily. What do you think, like almost maybe rashly, what do you think he sees in Ginger Joe that allows him to trust him with the information that he trusts him with and with the task that he trusts him with? That's a good question. Maybe we'll let Tim answer that one first while I think. (laughs) (laughs) Um. 
is usually pretty good at reading people, and I think there's an innocence about this boy and, and a kind of my heart's on my sleeve. So, um, are, so do we, are we certain now that Ginger Joe has nothing to do with the crime? Like, do we come out of Are we supposed to come out of it have basically essentially certain that oh, he has I, no I, role so in I it? did. I did. Because um, in, in this detective world, as opposed to a, a hard-boiled detective story, mm-hmm. the fact that Ginger Joe's brother is a cop is something trustworthy. Whereas mm-hmm. in, you know, in a, in a hard-boiled, that would probably make him suspicious. Also um, in hard-boiled um, and also just some of the spy novels and stuff, like young male – Characters like this are often meant to be foils to a younger version of the detective or the spy, and they're also enlisted by the enemy to entrap them and things like that. You know. But see, I do think she's—I do think she's doing the foil thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Go on. Because of because of the way he's reading the detective novels and he's trying to shape who he is and shape this whole experience of detecting through the narrative of what he reads. Yeah. So he's also like putting on this persona of who is the detective. Right, and this is a big thing. You see it in a lot of Western books, actually, where you've got this young character who latches on to this um, he- hero of, or at least a hero of sorts, right? Or this this warrior or whatever. So, like Lonesome Dove, you have this young guy who tags along with these old cowboys, or you'll ha- you'll see it a lot in cowboy movies, like a lot of John Wayne movies, um, like Rio Bravo. There's this young guy who tags along with the veteran cowboy lawman, um, and mm-hmm. this, and so. Uh, you and you learn to see the like John Wayne's character through the younger character. Almost, like there's almost every John Wayne movie has a young tag along. The Searchers, yes. Rio Bravo, the Cowboys, uh, whatever you know, um, uh, True Grit. Um, well, although that was a book first, but um, they, there's a young person who tags along, and you that's he's a character in and of himself if it's a, if it's a good story. But also you learn a lot about the way this other character interacts with real people. In a Western, he probably interacts interacts with him like it's probably tough love. In this situation, it seems to be like a, a, a because he's not a real cop like Ginger Joe. He has an enthusiasm for the the craft of of detective work, mm-hmm. and I think it seems like he la- he latches on to Ginger Joe's. Um, uh, and let me just say, if you haven't gotten that far, I'm not the one that made that name up. I just want to clarify that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It seems like he's latching on to Joe's enthusiasm for detective work, and he like he sympathizes with it. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, absolutely. He, and he gives him these little jobs to do to be a part of it, like as if when he was a kid, he probably would have loved that. And I feel like his tone changes a little bit in those conversations mm-hmm. too. Didn't you? Didn't you feel like that? Yeah, but he, go on. Well, I don't. I'm. You mean like he gets nicer? He, he's yeah, like he's not condescending. He right. stops with the silly banter, and he has. Like, like he just sizes this boy up immediately. That's interesting. So when he's talking to the adults, the men in particular, he does have this condescending, like, joking mm-hmm. way about him. And then with the women, he's just got this flirty way. But with the with the boy, with this young person, who he appreciates, he has a more consistent. Yeah, I felt like, like he was real in that moment, and that's why Ginger Joe says, "Are you a, are you at Scotland Yard?" Like, you know, he he knows mm-hmm. this is this is real. Whatever this is happening right now, this is this is not just a curious copywriter. There's something real here, that and even to let him in on the on the uh, fingerprinting process and all of that. That is interesting. That um, Joe recognizes just he's just like you're a detective, aren't you? You're a detective. Mm-hmm. You are. I know you are. Um, 
And but that's because Peter has let down the, the curtain. Right. But, of course, from a storytelling perspective, what this also does is create stakes, right? Because then later on, he has this report, and then it gets taken away from him, and you start what you don't know what happens to it, but you assume, oh, anything could happen to the report. Ginger Joe could be in trouble. It could start giving away that he's investigating. And so you, um, you, have, you begin to have this... This the drama ramps up a little bit by introducing this other character who we're sympathetic right. with. It, it, right. It's like when you know if you have the girlfriend or whatever. The girlfriend is inevitably the detective's girlfriend is inevitably going to go in some danger, and it's going to have to affect his ability to do his job. It's not quite the right. same, but it's that same right. effect. No, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, definitely from from a dramatic storytelling point. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I loved her little comment though when he sits down to write the report and says his English composition classes did not prepare him for this. <laughs> you know, making me write what did I see at the zoo in no way prepared me to write a detective report. And I love his whole thought process about how does he want to present himself. Like he's taking it so seriously. Yeah. Joe Joe, you mean? Joe, yeah. yeah. Which, of course, is also consistent with Lord Peter, who takes himself, his presentation yes, of himself then, very seriously. Yes, and then to continue the foil idea, then he gets a beating for it. Which is, all, you know, and then Whimsy almost does, but Parker gets the beating. So, like, there's the danger element to Joe as well. Hmm. I thought the whole thing was kind of like a little microcosm foil of Lord Peter. Because then he's got the cop brother that comes in, and Peter's got the cop brother-in-law, and... Now, I was suspicious when – but again, I have to remind myself that in a Sayers novel, the police are the good guys because when he gave his notebook to the brother and said, don't read it, I was like, oh, he's going to read it. Something bad's going to happen now. But then he didn't read it. We can trust his honor. He's a good guy. He's honorable. It, yeah, it does seem like she she drops these just little moments of just tiny little bits of tension, and even if they don't amount to anything – their cumulative effect is that the tension rises. Yes, I would agree that the tension has risen in this section. And it, even as for, I mean, until Parker gets knocked over the head and beat up and all that, it's been very small little things. And of mm -hmm. course, then that opens up everything to, you know, it, Lord Peter, and ostensibly Lord Peter's uh, work is just beginning and he has to ramp up his investigation. And right, he, and I he mean, leaves knowing seriously... he's in danger. Yeah, things have taken a serious turn because, you know, Parker almost gets killed, and now we know we're finding about drug lords and cocaine shipments, and, you know, suddenly it's taken a very serious turn. Oh, yeah, you know, just normal old detective story stuff. <laughs> Run of the mill. I'm always, like, surprised. I don't know. I guess I live in my – it's funny because I, I teach my classes where I'm constantly telling my students there's nothing new in the world. This has always been going on. But then I'm sitting here, you know – in my little happy place of a Lord Peter novel in 1933, and I'm like, what do you mean cocaine shipment? <laughs> Wait what do you mean a second. Doping. Maybe he was high at work and he just hurt himself. This is that's not how this is supposed to go. But you know that also does harken back to eight, you know late 1800s Sherlock Holmes stories where he's like taking uh, sure. uh, opium. I mean, like your main character in the most the most famous detective, most beloved detective of all time, was an opium addict. So. Um, you can't have a detective novel that's not dark at least a little bit, right? You're right. And we have – and it's interesting because we've been kind of drawing the comparison between Dorothy Sayers' kind of classic detective novel and, and the hard-boiled detective novels. And this book is like – it kind of flirts with the hard-boiled a little bit. You know, it's it's not hard-boiled, but it, it's 
it flirts with some of those same kind of seedy themes. And we even have a femme fatale in the character of Diane. Hmm. You know, um, we hmm. don't know exactly what she is, but she's a, she's a player in this somehow. And uh, Victor Dean's a nice boy who gets, you know, sucked in with this girl into this bad crowd. And then her response of, oh, yes, he fell and broke his neck. Good riddance. You know, that's just very, that's very <laughs> femme fatale, you know. Yeah. Good riddance. Moving along, <laughs> moving along. Pretty much. And then she's like, but this guy in the Harlequin is just dreamy. And um, and also the whole, like, her her reflections at her house about how bored she is. She's just, I'm so bored and I'm just looking for some fun. That was very, that was to me very, like, Fitzgerald, Lost Generation, mm-hmm. Hemingway. Yeah, and like Zelda. Yeah, they're all just so bored and they just want some excitement, drugs and romance, whatever. Just some some momentary relief from this yeah. crushing it's it's i mean that's straight out of the big sleep i don't know if you've never read that where i have a few times so where like the guy's daughter the main like the rich guy's daughter um she goes off and gets involved in sordid things because basically because she's bored right and then the older sister who in the movie is played by lauren bacall hires humphrey bogart or gets involved with him to try to get her to him to uh, humphrey bogart's sam spade character to solve it and basically everything happens the story begins because this this young woman goes out and is bored and so she gets caught up in things that she shouldn't get caught up in um and so but that speaks to the whole lost generation as you were saying but um the malaise the the nihilism and all that that we talked about in previous episodes yeah yeah and you were comparing you you mentioned that you um were thinking about that related huxley and you're working on a blog post about that. Can you give us a little preview of that blog post and what you're going to say I, there? I can. So I'm in my modern lit class, we're reading Brave New World. And when we started it, I was giving them my same little spiel of the background, uh, you know, kind of cultural context for it and the despair that came after World War One. And I've just, you know, I found myself saying all of the same things that we had said in previous podcasts here. Um, and I realized that this book was written in 1933. Brave New World's written in 1932. And I've always thought of Brave New World as, well, how did Huxley have eyes to see this? How was he the prophet to see how things were going to turn out? And I realized, but he's seeing the exact same things that Dorothy Sayers is seeing. He's seeing, because um, we because we said that in, in, in this book, Dorothy Sayers is seeing that the two sort of responses to this cultural despair that comes after World War One is consumerism and nihilism and hedonism, right? Drugs and free sex and all that. That's exactly what Huxley is seeing in Brave New World, right? That the the new world that's established, like to deal with all this despair, is the one where we must consume, consume, consume all the time to keep us from being bored, right? Where we might get into some kind of unhappiness and trouble. And the other thing is just drugs and free sex and and I just I, yeah. So I feel like Huxley and and Dorothy Sayers are both observing. At the same time, in the same place, that same cultural urge to satisfy the despair in in either hedonism or consumerism. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So I wonder this this book probably could be considered right alongside, you know, Gatsby, which which some people misread as as a celebration of of that lifestyle, which it's not. Um, or, or at least they don't want to read it because it's in it. But I, you, could, you could read it alongside Fitzgerald or um, even Hemingway in that, just to speak to what you're saying. I would love to. I, yeah, that would make a really great class, I think. I mean, I don't, I don't usually think about putting Sayers in a great books class, but 
Um, I think this book especially you could put, just like what you're saying, I think we could put it right alongside any of those to look at her perspective and her observations of the same sorts of things. There's nothing romantic about this lifestyle. I mean, it's very to be pitied. Right, yeah. And in her portrayal of it. And that's, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why Zelda Fitzgerald, for example, kind of becomes an archetype. Um, because she pursued that lifestyle, right? She pursued and fell in love with F. Scott Fitzgerald, and they lived that life for a while, and then they're both, you know, they both died at 45, right, because of it. Um, and so she's kind of like an archetype of what happens when, when you pursue that too far. It, it's interesting to me, the sort of resurgence in, in interest in her. You know, they've got that new show on amazon about her that's yeah i've watched out. a bit of like, that actually yeah i've been really curious about it i think i'll probably watch it too it's just i feel like we're sort of at that same cultural moment right where we we, we kind of we, we're on the other side of that okay so it turns out buying a bunch of stuff and just pursuing pleasure has not culturally solved anything we're mm-hmm. not any happier mm-hmm. uh, so it's just so interesting to me to see us fascinated with that character and even for that what was it a uh, midnight in paris yeah, yeah there was you know also those characters came yeah, back again yeah. and so it's just interesting to see those those characters and that that whole 20s lost generation seeing seeing us kind of uh point back to that and look at that again and well and I mean, there, i'm not sure there are a lot of similarities between the 20s and the 60s and then today and both of those eras are having a resurgence in our pop culture whether it's architecture the dress uh, or just in just in general, um, like with Mad Men and, and different mm-hmm. movies that have, you know, that are about that era. Um, and, you know, both those times were in the wake of war. Um, both those times were uh, in the wake of, to varying degrees, success, although the 20s, you know, perhaps less so than the 60s um, and now. And then you know, even now, while not dealing with world wars, the specter of war has been hovering over our existence for 15 years um and even if it's not as dramatic as what that was that's going to do something to a cultural consciousness like a collective cultural consciousness and it it seems like we are as you said living in a time that's trying to work through the effects of the way we lived like the way we built our culture and there's just not a lot of you know options (laughs) No, you're right. I think Mad Men deals with all of those things, right? It's so interesting, you know, that you look at that 60s uh, advertising firm and you look at this 1930s advertising firm. And uh, it, it's interesting that that's where storytellers choose to root their story to me because it well, is such an important thing and in great, our culture. Great Gatsby has a lot to do with advertising. Really? I don't remember that. Well, I've like, only read it since high school. We really should do a close reads on it because I haven't read it since I was like 16. Well, like she sees the sign on the road for the um, eye. The right. Eye, I the do eyes. remember yeah. that. And that, so like that, that's a metaphor that plays into the metaphor of the story quite a bit. Um, but that's for another discussion for another day. Well, we, we're, we're going, we're over an hour now, I think. Um, so any final thoughts um, before we close out on these, these four chapters and maybe any specific things you noted from this chapter that you that you're going to be thinking about as you go into the next section well i think this time i've been really kind of paying a lot of attention to lord peter's um involvement with the other women i I hadn't remembered that this book was where it came in the harriet vane series so um i i like that she continues that um well he's still faithful he's faithful to harriet in this book you know He's not, you know, because at first you think, okay, he's taking this 
this woman home, you know, and you, and, and they, Mary kind of rebukes him and he's like, no, 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 my morals are intact. I brought her home, passed out and tucked her in for her maid. Um, so I just, I found that interesting that she, she continues his character development in terms of Harriet and what's happening there, even though Harriet's not in this story. Hmm. So I found that interesting. Um, he wouldn't have been so honorable in earlier stories. <laughs> he has a reputation. Uh, if you had to guess right now, given that you don't remember, who do you think committed the crime? Oh, I don't know. I, I have no idea. I, I love that. that You just completely don't know. You forgot. I really, I really, that either means I'm a terrible reader or she's a really good writer. I have no idea. <laughs> or it's been a really long time. We have begun to suspect that Mr. Bryn, we found, you know, he's been mentioned now. Peter hasn't met him yet. So I'm, I'm curious to see what happens with Mr. Bryn. We found out that they were friends and that Mr. Bryn used to spend a lot of time uh, on the roof. And um, I don't know. Did, did Ginger Joe say that he w he was shooting the – I can't remember now. There was something suspicious about Mr. Bryn, and Lord Peter kind of perked up when he heard them say that. But it was so just like an aside, and, and it hasn't been the focus. So I'm going to be curious to see what we what we find out about him. Hmm. Of course, we've had lots of suspicion thrown on Mr. Armstrong. I'm sure he's going to mm -hmm. unravel some you know terrible, dirty business. What we need to do is we need to have someone create a flow chart that like has all the characters and when they get referenced with some kind of negative thing, and see if does he does she just kind of go through all the different characters and drop some kind of shade on all of them until we have no idea, or is she is there certain people that get left out from her shade, so to speak? I actually did that once in the first book. I did whose body because I just was so curious about how she. Yeah, this is the kind of nerd I am. But how she mm. structured her novel, and so I charted it out, but I didn't finish it. Mm. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious about the same sort of things. Like when does it shift, and who is the one in suspicion, and how is she? How is she? You know, because to to write a novel like this, it's methodically plotted out. Mm -hmm. It has mm -hmm. to be. Well, if we have any industrious listeners who want to take that task on, by all means, feel free to do so for absolutely no uh, <laughs> you know, for absolutely no pay. Uh, <laughs> You'll get the exact same pay I do. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. Um, okay, well, um, this has been a good conversation. Uh, we will be back with chapters nine, ten, eleven, and twelve next week. Uh, as you know, I just want to reiterate that we are. Um, recording on friday so today is friday january 27th this will go up on monday so we'll record fridays the shows will go up on mondays barring the rare exception um that, that's going to be the cycle so that gives you about a week to read the four chapters if if people think that's too many chapters for each time feel free to let us know and we can slow the pace down a little bit so you can read along with us um uh, one other thing i wanted to say is uh, one lovely listener sent me a copy of actually the same copy you have angelina of graham greens um oh. a confidential agent the confidential agent because i had mentioned that i couldn't find it and it's really true i can't find it um you can you can in theory find it like on ebay uh but it's not always you like i don't always trust the sellers and like the, the quality of the editions and stuff like that but so somebody emailed and said hey i have a copy you should send it do you, you want it and i said yes so thank That's you fantastic. i won't give the name out on the show because i don't know if i should but thank you to that to that um listener uh, no but i very much feel like i need to start dropping names and hints of things i might because <laughs> uh, i'm not feeling the love here <laughs> oh dear now you're gonna get like 40 copies of a bad romance novel if or you're sitting at home 
going, wait, my brother is Lord Peter Whimsy. <laughs> you know where to find me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, well, with that, let's go ahead and uh, sign off. This has been another episode of Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. For Tim McIntosh, who couldn't join us this week, uh, and for Angelina Stanford, I'm David Curran saying farewell, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for Bye-bye, listening. Bye-bye, everybody.